When we came to Haiti, it was still very largely a rural population. The majority of the people lived in the countryside and were small-scale farmers. We understood at the time, and the NGOs in the country understood at the time, is the way to lift Haiti out of its poverty is to keep people in the countryside productively and producing food that they export to the city, which they had been doing traditionally for decades, and able to live in their rural environment. But they're no longer able to live in their rural environment, so they're going to the cities. The cities get overcrowded, slums and violence and gangs and everything else. Welcome to the Earth Keepers podcast. This podcast is for people who seek new and better ways to love and care for the earth. It's a podcast for anyone who is deeply concerned about the harm being done to the environment on a local and global level. It's a podcast that builds community and connection between people of like heart and mind, people who believe that earth care should be integrated into every aspect of life, and for many in the Earth Keepers community, that includes our spiritual lives. As we know from international news reports, the country of Haiti is in the midst of a socioeconomic and political crisis. In this episode, I'll be talking with Ron and Carla Blenchley, Americans who have lived and served in Haiti for nearly four decades. They will share their views on the roots of the unfolding humanitarian crisis and also offer insights about environmental issues that are only becoming worse in the midst of increasing conflict and growing poverty. Importantly, their foundation called Nasonje works with internationals to promote awareness and understanding of Haitian history and culture. At the same time, they work with Haitians to promote restorative ecological practices. Welcome, friends, to the Earthkeepers podcast. Ron and Carla, welcome to the podcast, and thanks so much for taking the time today to be on the podcast and help us to understand some of the things that are going on in Haiti these days. Ron, I'd like to start with you. In recent months, we have all seen reports coming out of Haiti that paint a particularly troubling picture of life there. Let me ask you to help our listeners to understand the situation in Haiti and how it has impacted the community there. We are coming to you from Colorado, not because this is where we would like to be, but because we have to be here because we can't return home to Haiti. We have family. We came to visit and then we were unable to go back because the situation has degraded to that extent where even in our formerly quiet little community, gangs have moved in and disrupted things such that we're being advised not to go back. So we're kind of refugees, privileged <laughs> refugees, but still it's degraded to the point where the government has to basically do things like make deals with gang leaders in order to allow trucks of gasoline to pass. The gangs have control of the country. There's nothing within the country that can stop them. They've gotten so many weapons, and it's gotten out of control. I mean, the gangs didn't just develop by themselves. They were used as political tools by certain political parties, and also there are like five traditional big families in Haiti that have their own private little gangs that do their dirty work when they need it done traditionally, but it's gotten out of control. It's like Frankenstein's monster. It's gotten out of the lab and now it's going crazy. 
and the country is basically out of control. Hardly anything can happen. People are suffering tremendously from it. You have lived there for a long, long time. That you are part of the community, and you know you probably have less of a stigma of being foreign because your life is invested there. You know you belong to those people, and I'm guessing that just makes it really hard to be away right now, especially when folks there are suffering. Yeah, Boris, thank you again for having us and giving us the opportunity to speak on behalf of the country that we so love and we have been there for 37 years. And like you say, have invested ourselves in the community. We don't live in a great gated house or yard, you know, it flows with the community. Yeah, you know, we feel at a loss and we talk to our people all the time every day to know what's going on, how things are, what the daily struggles are. Your lives, your home, your hearts are in Haiti, but you hail from the U.S., So really, I would imagine you think a lot about the role of the U.S. for good or ill when it comes to Haiti. I'm wondering how you would characterize American involvement with Haiti at this time of crisis. Seemed like they don't care what happens. The main concern is about, you know, Haitians coming to our shores and, you know, deporting them back to Haiti. That seems to be our main concern at this point, which is very unfortunate. Right, because it seems like the American policies are actually going against themselves because the more you ignore such a drastic situation that is pushing people to make a life-threatening decision to take to the seas, to cross the ocean to get to Florida, and then they become a problem for the United States. Well, if their policies would be to stop propping up an unwanted, illegitimate government that isn't doing anything so that people could live in peace and security, then they wouldn't be an immigration problem for the United States. So it it doesn't make any sense. We're scratching our heads all the time about this. Well, yeah, that's not the only policy that appears to be counterproductive just on the face of it. But it's one that impacts us directly because mm-hmm. I know one person who did the long walk, got himself to Chile, and then walked to the U.S. border and got sent back to Haiti. He's a neighbor of ours. <laughs> and he stays up the mountain because he's ashamed right now. He doesn't come down and appear in public. So they just exacerbate the problem by deporting people in mass without considering why it is that they're walking through several countries to get to our southern border. Yeah. Well, let me ask you, you know, even in the best of times, life is hard in Haiti. And you mentioned, you know, the poverty, for example. I'm guessing that in itself is impetus for people to want to look for a home elsewhere because they don't really have choices to provide for their children in terms of education or food or what have you. It does raise the bigger question of what can and should be done that's more preventative rather than responsive, right? It's not about deportation, but instead the prevention of some of the issues that cause people to leave. I'm wondering, what could that look like, especially in terms of maybe helping improve the standard of living so that people aren't feeling driven to leave their home? It's a good question. It's a good question, and we could talk about it for a long time. (laughs) But one thing, when we came to Haiti, it was still very largely a rural population. 
the majority of the people lived in the countryside and were small-scale farmers. And I studied that in school, and that's what I came to do, was to help small-scale farmers produce more food with better techniques. When I got here, of course, I found out that it wasn't so simple. But, you know, I came here with the reforestation project, an agroforestry project, and with very simple techniques, you could get good results, protect against soil erosion to a certain extent, and improve yields. And yet it was very hard to get anybody to buy into the idea. There's a lot of resistance. It took a while for us to understand all the dynamics of that resistance. But the point is that we understood at the time, and the NGOs in the country understood at the time, is the way to lift Haiti out of its poverty is to keep people in the countryside productively and producing food that they export to the city, which they had been doing traditionally for decades, and able to live in their rural environment. But they're no longer able to live in their rural environment, so they're going to the cities. The cities get overcrowded, slums and violence and gangs and everything else. So the focus was improve the way of life of the peasant farmer. Our policy did exactly the opposite of that. You're talking ours, American. American. Ah, right, yeah. Yeah. I say our, I don't really own it as personal property. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) But you can say our as long as you're in Colorado, right? Yes, I'm (laughs) in Colorado. But, you know, there was a coup d'etat in 91 that we participated in. And then Clinton decided, well, it's politic to bring the man back, and so he brought RST back, but with conditions that Haiti toe the line with neoliberal politics, whereas what they needed, they needed protectionist policies for their rural agricultural production in order to do exactly what I was talking about, prevent people from feeling they needed to migrate to the cities. But that undermined that. And so the efforts of all these NGOs to try to work with peasant organizations, I mean, a few of them work effectively with a few peasant organizations, but there's resistance because just working with peasant organizations itself seems to be against State Department policy because they don't like groups, peasant groups, that we were told by an embassy personnel years ago that that leads to communism, so they don't really like that. Where they are probably the most grassroots democratic. Well, very democratic, (laughs) and it's very important. One of the lessons that I saw in my work with peasant farmers, I ended up working more with cooperative training because I wasn't doing it myself. I hired Haitians to do that job. It was very fulfilling to see where it worked, cooperatives farming, and at farmers seeing that when they're working together, when they work together, they actually benefit more individually than when they each work individually. So they see the value of it practically, not as some high moral ideal that's impossible to live by, like, you know, Jesus' kingdom of God, but it's something that they see as practically good for them to work together. So there's more harmony because people are more cautious about not pissing each other off. And they start doing other things. They start seeing what they can do to improve the land because now they have more hope in the future. So they start doing soil conservation 
measures and, you know, a number of things happen. When you encourage effective peasant organization, unfortunately, it seems that all the powers that be are afraid of that. So it hasn't taken off. And right now, it's hard to imagine how it could. The interesting thing I would just want to add to that, because I've done a lot of work translating and accompanying people who actually work in doing this kind of work of organizing peasant farmers. And I remember hearing a man who was learning the techniques from a Haitian organization in the country, and I was simply translating, but I remember he was saying that, you know, the church has taught us we're supposed to love each other, but they never gave us the tools. And now... We have the tools. This is really church, <laughs> living and working together. Now we could sit down in harmony with the people that we wouldn't before. So it is truly effective on not just an economic and social level, but also on a spiritual level. So it's amazing if it can really take off. But again, there are very few people that are working effectively in this way. Well, Carla, can I follow up on that and ask you to talk about the Nasunje Foundation? Because I'm guessing that you're probably trying to work against some of that with the work that you're doing in the foundation, in the community. Tell us about that and maybe even how it came to be and what needs it is supposed to be addressing in that context. That's a great question because it's really the fundamental reason why we are still in Haiti, in fact, is because of what we learned, how our eyes were just blasted open because of the Haitian reality and the people that we saw and realizing that, wow, we have a lot of ideas that we hold from our education and our culture that we don't question until we move out of it and realizing that there's a lot of woundedness that's happened and continues to happen because of our preconceived ideas that need healing. And that's the basis for the foundation. And Nassange means it's a simple Haitian Creole phrase. It's nothing special. It just simply means we will remember. And in remembering, we can go back. It's also an African idea, too, of going back to heal and come forward. So we have, for the past 12 years and more, but 12 institutionally, have hosted university groups in particular, community groups, church groups from mostly the United States, but also Canada and from other countries, to visit, to be immersed into the culture, the history, the language, to help make some of those paradigm shifts by being immersed and therefore helping to heal those wounds of preconceived historical wounds that are there. We talk about racism, yes, it's a part of it, unfortunately, that has multiple levels, for the reason Haiti is the way it is. And so healing, you know, confronting our history, reconciling that there are deeper things we need to understand and to try to heal those together. In the reality of Haiti, and I believe that Haiti holds space for people to do that. And again, that's the work that we do. And more recently, it's expanded to healing of the land, the earth as well. And we believe this is all spiritually oriented. Yeah. Yeah. When Nasanje was doing more cultural orientations groups, mm -hmm. 
we still had an aspect in our work and just in our lives in Haiti hmm. and planting trees and encouraging just by example agroforestry practices you know hmm. we have a garden below our house that I used to <laughs> have a vegetable garden in but then we just planted it in food bearing trees so that there's no maintenance really other than just <laughs> waiting for the trees to get mature we have Maya nut trees, breadfruit trees, and oranges, and grapefruits, and mangoes. And but you really struggled in with your cabbage garden because the land was so poor. Yeah. <laughs> we yes. even had a composting toilet that you added to the ground to help stimulate, and that was to yes. yeah. work for all out. one of the reasons why the farming situation, the environmental situation is so terrible in Haiti is because their mountains are basically... Subsoil, the subsoil is, is limestone. It's just seabed that rose up. And there's a very thin layer of topsoil on top of that. And once you get that mm -hmm. taken away, like it's about a foot in some places and some places less, once that's gone, you're just trying to farm in limestone, <laughs> basically. Mm -hmm. yeah, that doesn't work. <laughs> yeah, I want to talk more about the sort of ecological dimensions here of work, but something that you said intrigued me. So part of the work of Nassanje is the transformation of people's understanding of their mindset, maybe even a disabusing of untruths that people believe. And I'm talking about the foreigners who come to you. Exactly, yes. But I also wonder, is there an element to the foundation's work that is about the transforming of folks who live there? You know, the sort of perspective changing, perspective expanding that might be necessary. Does that happen as well? Yeah, I think to a certain degree, it's not necessarily our goal is to change people's minds, but the fact that white people who have this history come and are interested, want to learn the language, which is... <laughs> You wouldn't think it would be that big of a deal because when they go to another country, they should learn the language. But the fact that French has been a dominant language because of the colonial relationship, Haitian Creole has not been as esteemed. It is getting more and more, even by the elites in the country. Most radio stations were done in French. So Haitian Creole being esteemed and given so much credibility and for foreigners to come and actually learn it actually means they're learning about them and their culture, their history, the reality that they're struggling with. What are the proverbs, the beautiful wisdom that is contained in this language that was born out of the fight for freedom against the colonial power? So the Haitian Creole language is a language of resistance, of power, of freedom. <laughs> and it's extremely rich in its proverbs, you know. People learn so much about the wisdom of the people right from the ground up. And so the effect that has on the community, the outside community, the Haitian community is, oh, wow, <laughs> these people respect us. That is so deep in the work of Nassonje of, you know, esteeming their culture and their games, the way they do things, learning, learning, just simply University students coming to learn how to cook over a charcoal fire or a wood fire, going to the market and bargaining for things. The people see that as, wow, these people really want to know us on a deeper level. 
Yeah. I think our Haitian team mm -hmm. learns from their contact with the Americans. That, you know, they learn more about us because on both sides, people have mm -hmm. prejudices. They have ideas about what Americans are like, just like we have ideas about what Haitians are like. This makes me remember stories that our staff, our Haitian staff, has told us about what they thought of white people before they really knew us or anybody white. When they were kids, they would run away. They'd see whites coming, they would run and hide under their beds. <laughs> or when they were in school and they see a bunch of white people in a truck, they go running after them, thinking these were some special beans. <laughs> throw money or something. Yeah, so it's really changed their perspective. And I always tell them, I always give them a cautionary, you know, not everybody is like the people that are coming or like us either. We're one side of the coin about foreigners. But it is helping crack open that and letting them breathe a little bit easier about who they are as a people that have been so crushed for so many centuries, not only through slavery, but because of the exploitation of the elite powers in Haiti and the foreign policies that have crushed the growth of Haiti. Hello, Earthkeepers. Did you know that for every human on Earth, there are 200 million insects? And did you know that when bees are out gathering nectar, sometimes they fall asleep in flowers? This is James Amidon, executive producer of this podcast and executive director of Circlewood. Learning facts like these isn't just interesting. It gives us the kind of ecological knowledge that helps us in our everyday earthkeeping. And if that's something you're interested in, Circlewood has an upcoming online course called How Creation Works, Science for Everyday Earthkeepers. The purpose of the course is to empower people like you with scientific understanding that can help them understand and care for creation. Now, of course, you don't have to be a scientist to care for nature, but knowing some of the foundational science can help us care in more informed and helpful ways and can help us recognize just how awesome the world is. There'll be no exams, no lab reports, just a guided introduction to the science of earthkeeping from a teacher, Chris Overland, who is passionate about making science accessible to everyone. He'll help you understand and apply scientific principles from earth science, chemistry, and biology to real-life environmental challenges. And you'll walk away from the course with real ideas you can apply to your current work and life. And you'll also grow in your relationship with the world and its creator. The course starts Tuesday, April 11th, and runs for seven weeks. It's just $95, and we'll hope you'll join us. If you want to learn more, simply go to www.circlewood.online backslash education. Thanks, and now back to the conversation. I want to hear more about the work of Nassanjay in terms of environment and sustainability, but to get some context, Ron, I want to ask you, I mean, you have a background in forestry, and I'm guessing that gives you, you know, maybe a particular ability to take the broad view of what's happening in Haiti, you know, both in history and in the present. In terms of the ecology, what are some of the main issues that the country struggles with as a whole? And maybe even what are some of the sources of these major challenges that Haitians face? The problem that's been around longer for quite a while is the deforestation. You get deforestation, like I said, the soil is very thin in the mountains, most places. There's a few places where they have 
richer soil, it's darker, but a lot of places it's just this thin layer of black soil on top of white subsoil. Those areas are basically denuded at this point, and they can grow nothing. That's one of the big problems, because there's a lot of uh, the negative effects when you have deforestation in a mountainous country. You get flooding, you get access to water decreases because springs aren't fed as well. The soil doesn't absorb the water, it runs off. There's all sorts of problems that way. And, you know, there was a lot of effort. Like when we came into Haiti, reforestation was the big thing. USAID had a big program to plant trees all over Haiti, and lots of trees were planted. We had a nursery, we had a lot of trees planted. And some of them survived. And, you know, there were some areas where the Haitian educators were encouraging people to plant trees and why and the benefits of it. You know, even though it's foreigners giving these trees out, it doesn't mean that these trees are going to curse you. You know, things like that. That those areas, I was encouraged to see, you know, areas that had been barren when I got there in in 85, a few areas where our project worked, are now, there's a lot of trees there. When they started the project, they went around and found a few people that would agree to dedicate a plot of land to planting trees. They were paid to plant trees in this land. And then they decided, well, this species looks good, this one looks good, and that's what was used in the project. After about 10, 12 years, those plots... The trees had grown up and become mature, and there was one guy that we were working with who had one of those plots, and he said he was now making more money off just collecting the dead wood out of that plot than he used to make when it grew corn. And then when he needs a larger chunk of money, he can cut down one of the larger trees and make boards out of it and sell them, and it will grow back. And so... (laughs) Inadvertently, that's the thing that caught on. And so now people are dedicating plots of lands to trees. Yeah, that wasn't a foreign it idea. It came out of a Haitian reality. And that's <laughs> part of the actual education program we were doing, but it's the thing that caught on. Well, speaking of Haitian reality, I would imagine that you know when your main concern is getting by day to day, feeding your family, I wonder, is attention to the environment, to reforestation, is it hard for Haitians to actually think in those terms when they're struggling day-to-day just with their basic needs? That's just a human condition. It's like us, we're facing a huge climate crisis, but it's maybe 50 to 100 years away, you know, before it's really going to bite, and so we don't care about it. Mm. So we're not doing the things that can prevent it. (laughs) Saying that it's going to bite. Well, you know, it's the same thing there. If they need to feed their kids or need to pay for school, and the only way they see they can do it is by cutting down some small trees and making charcoal and selling it, that's what they're going to do. The second thing I was going to mention was the uh, plastic garbage pollution that has clogged the waterways and, and just it's horrible because. These plastic sacks are everywhere. Why, when they need to drink water, they buy these little plastic sacks. They're the cheapest, right? 
it's cheap and it's easy, and then they just throw the plastic on the ground, and you know, some places where the streets lined with plastic. Clunk the sewers, <laughs> this and the water drainage in the city. Yeah. So from the mountains, everything gets washed down into the poorest neighborhoods, you know, because they're down near the seaside. Yeah. Yeah. Well, so what's Nassau and Jip doing then in terms of trying to make a dent? You'd mentioned trying to deal with plastics. You're obviously doing some education. What else is going on with the foundation and its work? Well, right now, since we're here, the guys are there and they are planting in the garden, doing the composting. We do natural composting planting. and planting trees. Yeah, we have a nursery. <laughs> we try to recycle the plastic bottles. So, you know, we put our dirt and plant and our seedling into the plastic bottles, you know, helping to use them and not be wasted. But they eventually grow out of those plastic bottles and yeah, you have more than you can handle. Yeah, so it's been burning. But we the ideal way. No, to deal with it. at least it's not clogging up the vision. yeah. The vision that we have is to do education in grade schools and middle schools wherever we can to build a curriculum. We have a little microscope maybe to help people, especially the kids, really see things you can't see with your own eye and really understand what's going on with transformation and just from the organic, invisible side of things. I don't know any school I've ever visited has a laboratory. There may be some, of course, I haven't visited them all, but it's very, very rare to have any school that has any kind of microscopes or equipment like that for kids to really understand. Biological education, science education is dismal. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you had mentioned that there's a different name for that arm of the foundation that does more ecology work, and translated it means we will remember green. I'm wondering if part of the meaning of that phrase might be that there are things that can be remembered, maybe even lost practices and traditions that could be revived and given new life to meet the challenges that folks are facing today. Do you think that's true? Oh, yeah. In Haiti right now, there is a movement encouraging people to eat more breadfruit mm -hmm. because it's a tree. You don't need to do anything. It just continues to give you food. Mm -hmm. it's, it's a wonderful thing. So people are being encouraged to eat breadfruit instead of rice because everything imported is going to get more and more expensive. And it's one way to support farmers in areas that can grow breadfruit. Not every place can. When we started doing the trees, the youth around us saw, you know, that we were starting to bag up trees. I mean, when we started, it was mango seeds that were sprouting that we would find in the land and the ground and just replant them and sack them. The kids started seeing that and were bringing us the <laughs> sprouts that they had started. And I had a friend years ago that said to me one time that she remembered as a child at her grandparents, that they would just eat whatever seeds they had, the orange or the lime seeds, they would, you know, throw them on the ground and they would sprout. And then her grandfather would take them out into their lands, their fields, and replant them. So there were all these things like that happening that has just died out. And so hopefully as some of these kinds of initiatives happen, kids know especially when they've lived out in the countryside, they know about trees. They know about growing these things. They've just been discouraged. This was one of the problems with trying to bolster the peasant agricultural economy is that 
in addition to it being physically difficult because of the degradation of the land and pressure put on it by too many people, it's also socially looked down upon. It has a stigma attached to it. It's hard to encourage a young person to feel like they're going into a noble profession mm -hmm. if they have a farm. Right. It's like farming is associated with slavery yes. still. Not a profession. An equivalent is how we stereotype hillbillies. Mm. That's how Haitians look on peasant farmers, even though most of them come from peasant farmer families. They still mm. look down on it. If they successfully make a living in the city, then somehow they're better than a peasant farmer, even though their father was one. It's a big problem. And that's not the kind of thing that foreigners can solve by doing seminars and training programs. <laughs> they have to figure that shit out. I wanted to help also bring some context to all of this because many people will wonder, what the heck's going on? What's wrong with Haiti? Why can't they figure this out? What's going on? What's wrong politically, socially, and, and et cetera? And because of our work with Nasongi with universities too, this is this is an issue you really need to address to help people wrap their minds around what is the core problem here. And I think it has to do with the history, the French colonization and the slavery, and then them fighting for freedom, getting their independence. But when they got their independence, it was the first black republic in the world that had fought slavery. So they were cast away. They were isolated because of that, because slavery was still going on, because their independence happened in 1804, <laughs> 60 years some before the United States freed, supposedly freed their people. Haiti would have problems even if the rest of the world was supportive and nurturing. They'd have their stuff to get over. Oh, sure. That only they can deal with. At least what our country and other countries can do is try to provide that sort of environment to help Haiti deal with its own problems and not give it more problems and not tie its hands so that it can't deal with its own problems, which has been policy ever since it got founded. Well, I think you're both making such a good point in describing these sort of meta-level realities, right? I mean, culture and history... It's so much a part of what's going on in terms of circumstances, which I think then is prescriptive. Like if, let's say, the United States decided it wanted to be more supportive of Haiti, you know, probably the most obvious way they might do that is let's send them money to plant more trees. But I think the point you're making is that's a Band-Aid. It doesn't change the fundamentals of people's mindset of their culture and worldview. And so there's got to be a more holistic solution. Is that what I'm hearing? Give Haiti a chance economically. Don't require that they fit into the world model because they can't make it work. Let them have a different model. Let them escape from your grip economically. Everything isn't always about making as much money as you can. <laughs> you know, there's humanity to consider. <laughs> That's one thing. And then stop deporting. You arrest Haitians in Miami and New York and you put Texas. them in prison and then you send them back to Haiti, that's, you know, really picked up in the 90s, and that's when gangs started. 
your policy of deportation is screwing Haiti over. Stop it. Another huge thing as well is all these things are important to be in context, but also the very fact that there is and there are and there have been visionaries and people who know and understand all of these dynamics. They're well-educated. They're well-positioned. They just haven't been heard or been allowed to have a voice in this change that needs to happen. They know it. One of our most dearly beloved, he's like a son to us, has he went to the DR to be educated. He's an agronomist because he saw what Ron was and he wanted to be that. He's come back and with so many of these young adults and people that have older adults that are in Haiti that understand that political dynamics and are there with a vision of their country, what they know it needs and how it needs it. They just haven't been allowed. They haven't been heard. It's almost like there's a wall. There's a barrier. It's like the State Department and whoever doesn't want to hear these voices because they're so progressive. And for instance, even the Haitian constitution has within it a section called the territorial collectivity, which means that the democracy that's outlined in the Haitian constitution, it was Haitian or the last one, which is 1987, would set up structures in the peasant mountains where people would have a say in the politics. There would be groups, there would be collective groups. This is not, you know, a lot of people say collectives, those are, that's a communist type of word. But this is so exactly. democratic and it's a participatory democracy that we don't even have. We have a representative democracy. But this structure has never been put into place. There's never been enough stability, actually, in the country to do it. But it's there. <laughs> and the minds are there. The visionaries are there, waiting, just waiting. We have listeners from all over the world. And so I'm wondering, what do you say to them? I mean, clearly, American policy plays a really big part in this, right? But are there policies from other countries as well that are impinging on the creation of this bad situation? Well, yeah. for Haiti, the three main players are the United States, Canada, and France. And all three of them need to change their policies. <laughs> but it's difficult because like we were pointing out before, some of the things that really help Haiti are perceived by the Western world as being dangerous. If you have in the countryside networks of groups that sound like some sort of communist creation of Soviets, that kind of thing, <laughs> we don't want that. So, yeah, it would be really helpful for them to at least get some people that understand Haiti from a Haitian perspective rather than from the American perspective, how we can use these people. And of course, there's calls for reparations. That's all over you know, the pillaged world. You know, A lot of times they call the third world. Well, you can kind of say it's they're, they're the pillaged world and that first world were the pillagers. And there needs to be some reparations there. And I know those are very difficult and very fragile questions politically, economically. But the other thing is that along with what Rod is saying about policies, for instance, when Bill Clinton opened the ports for imported rice to come into Haiti. The big story 
And we were working with rice farmers at the time who happened to be part of the reforestation project that were just blown away by this as, you know, destroying their capacity. And, you know, Bill Clinton apologized for that. Decades later. Yeah, decades later. But that doesn't do any good. The American <laughs> rice is already in there and it's cheaper than the Haitian rice. So what can people who don't have enough means, they buy the American rice. So it's good for the Arkansas rice growers. So those types of things, too. The we don't understand how this all plays out on the ground. It's actually what sometimes our economic policies, actually what you vote for, actually, sometimes you vote for your representatives. They go to Washington. They vote on how much money goes to the IMF, the International Monetary Fund, the World Bank, loans to Haiti, and make the rules. And what those institutions do is they say, well, Haiti, if you want these loans from us, you can't have tariffs on your imports. So those sorts of things is to make sure that your representatives, your vote, your democracy is not destroying the lives of people in other countries. So much of what you both are saying, I am guessing that listeners probably didn't know 25% of these things that you're speaking, you know, in terms of the geopolitical system and the sort of historical pressures that have gotten Haiti to where it is today. And it really emphasizes to me the importance of awareness, right, of understanding what is really going on, taking the time to learn about what are the systemic factors that are creating these problems. And I look at Nassonje and maybe see it almost as an act of resistance to lack of understanding, right? I mean, so much of what you do is helping people to open up their minds and their hearts to what's really happening. And I would say that for me, that would be a hard thing. In the face of the need, of the vastness of the need, of the intractability of the system, how do you hold on to hope to keep on with that work? You have to be in a group of people to understand, to, to overcome stereotypes. That, that one of the biggest lessons for me in this whole experience has just been, I see humans as humans. <laughs> We're all messed up. <laughs> We all have beautiful aspects to us, especially when we turn the love on. Mm -hmm. We've been in conversation with Ron and Carla Blenchley about the humanitarian and ecological crises in Haiti. If you want to support their work or just find out more about it, you'll find helpful links to their website, photos, and videos in the show notes for this episode. I'm Forrest Inslee, your podcast host. Our executive producer is James Amidon. Our producer is Dave Wolfers. Forrest Reed is the creator of our original music, and Timothy Connor is our podcast editor. Our research assistant is Alex Megerly, and Jessalyn Gentry is our social media director. Thank you, friends, for listening. And please join us for our next conversation on the Earthkeepers podcast.